welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover Two Resources. On December 19th, 2018, the Energy and Commerce Committee released a long-awaited report titled Red Flags and Warning Signs Ignored, Opioid Distribution and Enforcement Concerns in West Virginia. The purpose of the report was to investigate allegations of opioid dumping in West Virginia. Today, we'll talk with Joseph Renazizi, who for over a decade was the front man in the government's battle against the opioid epidemic. As head of the Office of Diversion Control for the DEA, he was responsible for cracking down on doctors, pharmacies, drug manufacturers, and distributors who did not follow the nation's prescribing drug laws. You may recall him from the 60-minute story titled The Whistleblower from last fall. Mr. Renazizi provides insight into controls that should be in place to protect the public from diversion of highly addictive controlled substances and how it's gone off the rails. So, Mr. Renazizi, welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay. Let's uh, begin by just talking a little bit about that Commerce Committee report that came out in uh, December. It identified some red flags and... You know, it used quite a number of cases that you were involved in, um, most notably the Tug Valley Pharmacy case. Now, Tug Valley is, uh, they're located just a couple of blocks away from another pharmacy in West Virginia. Uh, the town is uh, about three, a population of about 3,000 people, and they were shipped 20.8 million doses of hydrocodone and oxycodone over an 11-year period. Somehow, they were able to get away with this without being detected. So maybe we can use that kind of as the backdrop in terms of describing how the system should work and how, in this case, they were able to get away with that. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, while I supervised the whole Office of Diversion Control, uh, I I, I didn't have – I wasn't doing any direct investigation into those pharmacies. We had diversion investigators and supervisors and um, uh, other leadership that was involved directly in those investigations. Uh, So I just wanted to clarify that. However, your your people in the field are doing the investigation. My people in the field were in the investigation. And you had 600 Uh, of those uh, people in diversion investigators, approximately uh, 600 uh, with a, uh, uh, a registrant population of well over 1.7 million. Joining me on this episode to provide additional insight into the topics covered in my interview with Mr. Renazizi is Eric Iyer, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from the Charleston Gazette-Mail. I ask Eric to comment on the DEA's resource constraints in his backyard of West Virginia. They were totally understaffed, Greg. Um, between the, the period of 2005 to about 2015, they essentially had two diversion investigators assigned for the whole state to, to investigate, you know, the diversion of prescription drugs to the, to the black market. Uh, one of those diversion investigators passed away. So they, for much of that period, there was only one. 
Um, this was confirmed in 2017. I met with the special agent in charge of the Washington, D.C. field office, which covered um, covered Washington, D.C. and Maryland and Virginia and West Virginia. And uh, he, he so much has admitted that uh, they were woefully understaffed, woefully um, lack of resources on the ground. Next, Mr. Renazizi explains how the controls to prevent diversion should work. The Controlled Substances Act uh, was set up in an infrastructure where everyone in the act had a responsibility to maintain effective controls against diversion. Now, what do I mean by that? Just that they, each individual, each entity in the act in, w- that has a DEA registration that handles controlled substances, each one of those entities was responsible to maintain controls to prevent diversion. So, for instance, a doctor, for a doctor to prescribe, he has to pres- uh, a controlled substance. He has to do so for a legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practice. That means that, you know, he's got to make a determination. He's got to do a, he's got to establish a doctor patient relationship, make a determination that that patient needs a particular drug to treat a particular, uh, ailment, disease, whatever symptom. Uh, and, and a pharmacist has a corresponding responsibility to ensure that the prescription that that doctor writes is valid. So if, if you look at what a doctor's doing, it, to write a valid, effective prescription, it has to be for a legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practice. The pharmacist has to look at that prescription, evaluate it, and determine if indeed it is for a legitimate medical purpose. And how does he do that? By doing a, a, a red flags analysis. He looks at the, pres- at the presentation of a prescription. He looks at that prescription and the patient and, and evaluating the red flags that are presented uh, at, at when that patient, that person hands that pharmacist the, page, uh, the uh, prescription. At that point in time, he does an evaluation and then he has to make a determination. Should I fill this prescription or should I not fill this prescription? Would Up- you say that that determination is more gut feel or science? I think it's a little of both. Um, Here's an example. Uh, an oxycodone 30 milligram prescription coming into your pharmacy for a patient that you know that's being treated by an oncology physician uh, for stage four cancer. Uh, the pharmacist knows the patient, knows the doctor, knows what the patient's being treated for. Um, that's kind of a, a no-brainer. Now, let's, let's look at a different situation. Let's look at a real-life situation that we've seen. A pharmacist receives a prescription for a patient who's not in that neighborhood, who's located maybe 30, 40 miles from that pharmacy. The doctor, the pharmacist doesn't know, but when he looks up the doctor, the doctor's located 20 miles or 30 miles, or 50 miles from that pharmacy. It's for the largest dose of oxycodone, oxycodone 30 milligram tablets, uh, and he's getting them one to two tablets every four to six hours uh, for pain. And then it's number 240. Once again, 
Eric comments on the trends of the pharmacies in West Virginia. You had these these doctors, they got a list of the doctors that were prescribing for a particular pharmacy uh, that was filling the prescriptions. You know, you had some in, here in West Virginia that were in Washington, D.C., which is about seven-hour trip, so 14 hours round trip. You had others in Virginia that were, were writing prescriptions. The people were taking their prescriptions from Washington, D.C., from parts of of Virginia that were two hours away from a particular pharmacy in West Virginia and taking the prescriptions to West Virginia to get it filled uh, and then, you know, returning back to where they came from. Or if they were from here, they were, uh, you know, they were going to find these illegitimate doctors. And that was the thing that it seemed like um, every pharmacy had sort of a special arrangement with a particular physician that they would agree to fill their pharmacy. Like we have um, what's called, what was called the Hope Clinic, uh, the pain clinic here in Charleston. And they would put up on, you know, many of the other pain clinics did the same thing. They put up a a sign on the door that said, you know, get your prescription filled at XYZ Pharmacy. So they'd find a particular pharmacy that would fill the prescription and they would alert their patients that this is where you need to go. So it was, there's this mutually beneficial relationship between the pharmacy and the, the pain clinic. And that, that happened all over. And if it's a pharmacy, if one pharmacy got in trouble, then the, the pain clinic would send them the, their patients to a new pharmacy. But so in, in some, in some of these instances, you know, you, they went up running out of pharmacies to send their prescriptions to, and they would have to, people would have to travel, you know, hundreds of miles to get their prescription filled. It's a big red flag. First of all, why is that patient coming to your pharmacy? Why is he on the highest dose? Oh, and by the way, he's also on Alprazolam, you know, the, uh, the one milligram tablets, uh, three times a day or two times a day. And he's also on a, uh, oxycodone 15 milligram for breakthrough pain and and all but but the question the pharmacist asked the first question is do i know this doctor and the answer is well no he's located 20 miles away why and and this patient i've never seen before and now he's in my pharmacy but he doesn't live anywhere near here so the doctor doesn't live near here the far the patient doesn't live here he's on the highest dose of of oxycodone uh, he's on the highest dose of, of uh, he's on a breakthrough pain uh, regimen with oxy 15 and, and all of these things start stacking up. And then you get the pharmacist has to ask himself, well, is this legitimate? And so he'll start asking questions to the patient. And if those patients answers, uh, if he don't reconcile his concerns, at that point in time, the pharmacist has to make a decision. Now, a pharmacist should say, in that case, you know, based on what he is seeing, well, I, I'm just not comfortable filling this prescription. I'm, these prescriptions, I'm not going to. When that fails, then who does that responsibility next fall to? Well, the pharmacist has that responsibility, and, and that's a check. The pharmacist is a check on the doctor. The check on the pharmacist would be the distributors at that point. Now, for the distributors, they're not going to evaluate prescriptions. They're just not. There's the ability of of distributors to obtain information like that. Distributors have a legal obligation to conduct robust due diligence on their prospective and current customers. Additionally, 
They're required to create and maintain complete due diligence files on an ongoing basis. But they don't really need that necessarily. They don't need that because there's other ways of, of obtaining you know, or, or doing due diligence on those customers. So for a, for a distributor, the first thing you look for as a distributor mm-hmm. is any anomalies in ordering patterns. In fact, the, the Controlled Substances Act in, it requires a distributor to maintain effective controls against diversion. And in that Controlled Substances Act, uh, when it defines what maintaining effective control, uh, controls against diversion are, uh, one of the things is you have to uh, maintain and op- operate and maintain a system that identifies suspicious orders. And then it goes on to say a suspicious order is an order of unusual size, unusual frequency, or outside a normal ordering pattern. Pharmaceutical distributors, the middlemen, are required to have a suspicious order reporting system in place that will flag and report all suspicious orders of controlled substances from their customers. In the case of these pharmacies, and not just West Virginia, any of the pharmacies we've looked at in the past, what we see is an anomaly in the ordering pattern where a pharmacy will will go a certain percentage above ordering every month, or at the end of the six months, they're 30, 40, or 50% higher than they were six months prior. That anomaly in ordering pattern should trigger, should trigger questions by the distributors. And, and so, and that's where the thresholds come in, right? Pharmacies have thresholds for each of those that they're measured against at the distributor level for their quantity of each of these that they're purchasing. There's under federal law, there's no thresholds. A threshold would be set by a company if that's what they choose to do, if that's how they're, they're, they're establishing a suspicious order. And as you could see, thresholds, uh, thresholds have their problems. At this point, I was a little confused on thresholds and how they worked. So I turned to Eric Iyer for comment once again. Well, some of them are setting low thresholds that the pharmacies were continuing to uh, exceed and the, there was no consequences. The, they didn't submit a suspicious order report or uh, that they didn't notify the DA that something nefarious was going on. In, in other cases, that, as the report points out and that we've seen over and over, is that if a, if a pharmacy started meeting the threshold, they didn't hesitate to raise the threshold. So, you know, you'd see these instances where, um, you know, you had the threshold, I'm just picking a number out of the air, 50 thousand hydrocodone in a month and then the next month it's 80 and then it's 120 um and in the average retail pharmacy um these thresholds in west virginia were far exceeding the average you know what an average retail pharmacy was which i believe i think the numbers that i've seen are about 60,000 oxycodone and 90,000 hydrocodone in a year and they're setting these thresholds at like 125,000 hydrocodone. So, you know, it was just far exceeding what, what an average retail pharmacy would do. And, and they were, you know, they were fully aware of it. Now, the, the pharmacies, there's a lot of documentation in the report where they were sort of nagging or, or uh, you know, sending emails saying, we need more, we need our threshold raised, we we, you know, we're doing such, you know, such good business and 
there were cases where, um, you know, if, if, the, if they didn't raise the threshold and the pharmacy would, you know, there'd be another, they were fearful that the distributors are fearful that a competitor would swoop in, you know, at the higher threshold and, and supply. So um, these thresholds were essentially meaningless. So we've learned that distributors are required to disclose suspicious orders, but they're not required to use a particular method or system to flag those orders. The most common system devised by wholesale distributors to prevent diversion utilizes thresholds or parameters to limit the amount of a specific drug family that a pharmacy can receive each month. As we heard earlier, this system has been virtually meaningless in controlling the diversion of narcotics. What we were seeing, and it's not just in West Virginia, we were seeing it in in different states. Take Florida, for example. Uh, Those thresholds were either being ignored if the company had thresholds or just the signs of the ordering patterns were being ignored. Now, if an ordering pattern shows uh, is suspicious, the, the, the distributor is required not only to identify it, but to report it to DEA. Uh, in many cases, uh, suspicious ordering patterns were never reported, dating back to 2006 when we had the internet problem. They just would not report their suspicious orders, orders of unusual size, frequency, or outside normal ordering pattern. And, and that, in, in and of itself, is a violation. If they didn't, or if they didn't identify the, the, the orders as suspicious and they didn't report them, uh, it takes away a, 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 an important check because for us, that reporting gives us a lead to look at pharmacies. To look at a pharmacy, to look at a specific pattern, say, okay, let's see what this is, what's happening here. Because remember, there's 70,000 pharmacies, retail pharmacies in the United States. Again, 70,000 retail pharmacies, approximately 600 diversion investigators. Uh, So, you know, we have, we have limited resources here. Eric shares a story about what he learned in investigating some suspicious orders in West Virginia. Our board of pharmacy actually never did anything with the reports anyway. Um, I went there and, and did a, uh, I asked to see all the reports that had been filed. They brought out two bankers' boxes full of them. And I said, what, do you, what have you done with these? And they said, nothing. I said, how many are there? And they said, we have no idea. We've never counted them. I said, what did you do with them? And they said, we just put them in the file and it's a, in the file cabinet. And I, they said it was a big file cabinet. And so I actually sat down and, counted them, but uh, I did a count and there were 7,200 some suspicious order reports and our board of pharmacy had done nothing with them at all. Um, Now, some of the problems with the suspicious order reports is they would, as as the congressional report points out, that they would flag something as suspicious, yet nonetheless ship the order to the pharmacy. So I'm not sure what that really accomplished. So it seems like they just got in this mindset where we're just going to, to cover ourselves. We're going to just send, you know, basically, uh, you know, every single order that's been placed, we're going to identify as suspicious because that'll decrease liability. When you're looking at suspicious orders, you know, you tend to say, okay, well, here's a suspicious order. This is a pharmacy that's in a rural area. Why are they getting this quantity and why are their quantities increasing? And that's what we were looking for. And and that wasn't being done. 
In 2005, as the opioid epidemic was emerging in rural America, the DEA began a series of initiatives to educate wholesale drug distributors on their obligation to prevent substance diversion. And the initiative was called the Distributor Initiative. That was supposed to get the wholesalers in line with the ongoing reporting requirements. I asked Mr. Renazizi what happened. What happened... (laughs) <laughs> well, what happened was we sat down with each one of the, the larger distributors first, the, the, uh, the, the large wholesalers and distributors that made up the large, largest market share. And we explained to them uh, about their responsibilities under the suspicious order reporting under 1301.74. We explained to them that they must maintain effective controls against diversion to, to – uh, to avoid uh, an administrative action on their license. We, we explained to them that the, um, uh, the requirements to report these suspicious orders to DEA, to evaluate their customers, to do due diligence on their customers. And we showed them in, in, in real life, real life uh, uh, purchase and distribution patterns what exactly was suspicious. We explained to them why it was suspicious. And, and we gave them uh, we gave them the information and we asked them to to be more vigilant, uh, to to do due diligence, to to report suspicious orders. And, and we made sure they understood what the law was, what the regulation was. And then if we fast forward to 2007, the wholesalers really across the board weren't complying. You didn't have 100 percent compliance. So your office decided to take action against the largest distributors, hoping that that would make a difference. Yeah, we, it wasn't just the largest distributors. We took action against distributors in, in one case, a manufacturer. It wasn't isolated to just them. It okay. wasn't isolated just to the largest distributors. And we, we wanted to make sure they understood. Now, what do I mean by taking action? Well, because we, we explained to them what their responsibilities were. We gave them an, an opportunity to correct their violations. We gave them an opportunity to, to, to come in compliance with the act. And they didn't. Um, in some cases, the, the shipments downstream were in greater quantities than before we had the meetings. It was, it was almost like they just decided they just didn't want to comply. At this time, you had some tools to help you encourage them, I'll call it, to comply, including yes. the TSO, you big tools. Um, can you speak to what those are? Sure. The, the first tool is an order to show cause. And an order to show cause is just that. It's notification that the government is seeking to take action against your registration. And uh, you have an opportunity to appear before a judge and show cause why the government shouldn't proceed with that action, shouldn't uh, uh, prevail on that action. And you serve, you serve that immediate, that uh, order to show cause. They appear before the judge. We have a hearing. And at the end of the hearing, the judge makes a recommendation to the administrator, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And then the administrator, based on the evidence at the hearing and based on the drug judge's recommendation, makes a final decision. Now that decision could be a uh, a revocation where the the um, uh, registration is revoked and that that distributor that doctor or that pharmacy or manufacturer can no longer handle controlled substances. It could be a modified it could be a modified suspension or a suspension 
or it could be where the administrator says, okay, you violated uh, the act, but in your violation, uh, it wasn't as bad as, as uh, that rises to the level of revocation. Uh, so we're going to uh, put you on an MOA. And so the MOA. distributor a memorandum of understanding or agreement. Uh, so the, Which is the restrictions, in other words. Yeah, there are restrictions. So there's so many different things the administrator could do. Mm-hmm. To reel uh, them in. Yeah. And, and so that's the, the first way we could do things. The second way we could do things is an immediate suspension order with the order to show cause. Now, on an order to show cause, you could still practice with controlled substances. You could still distribute controlled substances. You could still do everything with controlled substances. The only difference is that at the end of the hearing and when the, the uh, administrator makes a determination, uh, at that point in time, if you're revoked, we take away your registration. But if I issue the order show cause with an immediate suspension order, at that point in time, you're done. You're done handling controlled substances, distributing, dispensing, prescribing until there's a there's a, a final determination from the administrator. So in order to show cause, you get to continue to do what you're doing with controlled substances until the administrator makes a determination. But if I issue an order to show cause with an immediate suspension order, you're done. We take your registration right there. We take your uh, all your controlled substances, all your order forms, uh, and and you cannot handle controlled substances until a a decision is made. Now, the immediate suspension order is used for the most egregious cases of violation. And and, uh, we have to show, or we had to show, that there was an imminent danger to public health and safety. The administrator had to make a determination that if she was going to issue that, that the activity of that particular pharmacy distributor or doctor or manufacturer was an imminent danger to public health and safety. How difficult is that to prove that you've got imminent danger? Well, imminent danger is just that. I mean, somewhere down the road, somewhere, somewhere based on the activity of that particular uh, distributor or pharmacy or doctor that he's allowing diversion or she or the entity is allowing diversion to occur. And because that diversion is occurring in, su- in the extent that it's occurring, it is an imminent danger, which means that it might not happen tomorrow, but somewhere down the line, based on that activity, that violative activity, somebody's going to be harmed. So you put two and two together and a reasonable person is going to conclude, hey, look, the public is going to be at risk from this. Exactly. Okay. It's a danger of risk, yes. And that all changed? Yes, it did. In, in 2016, um, Congress passed and the president signed, uh, and I think it was April of 2016, the Insuring Patient Access and the Effective Drug Enforcement Act of 2016. We conclude today's podcast with a preview of part two of our interview with Mr. Joe Renazizi the former head of diversion control for the DEA. There was another investigation where we were investigated for not adequately communicating with industry. They, with all the violations and all the sit-downs and everything we did, they actually launched an investigation, GAO, 
And, and mind you, every one of these investigations, we found serious flaws in. And when they were brought to the attention of GAO, they just didn't want to hear it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cover 2 PPT podcast series. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Join us next time for part two of our interview with Mr. Joe Renazizi. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.